to turn in God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 5, to read the first 11 verses there from 1 Peter chapter 5. And then we'll turn in the smaller book in front of us, the Forms and Prayers book, to the Canons of Dort, to consider a couple articles there. Considering tonight the reality that believers still struggle against sin, and if not careful, fall into even deep and grievous sins. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 11, the Word of God. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you turn in the Forms and Prayers book then to page 279, Canons of Dort, or one of our three confessional statements, which the church seeks to declare what they believe the Word of God teaches. And we're in this last point of this confession, the perseverance of the saints. Page 279, last time we heard that God preserves his elect all the way to heaven. But now we're warned about the dangers of falling into sin in Articles 4 and 5, page 279, Article 4. It says, Although that power of God, strengthening and preserving true believers in grace, is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. For this reason, they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sins. And then Article 5. By such monstrous sins, however, 
They greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. Until after they have returned to the way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face shines, again shines upon them. Let's bow and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we bow again on this Lord's Day before you, grateful that you hear our prayers through Christ. We thank you for the warnings of your word and for its realism. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us through the scriptures tonight and the word as confessed by your church, that we might be encouraged and awaken to stand firm and to keep watch and so to be preserved by your hand. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, people of God, the canons remind us of two things we might like to forget, two painful moments in the history of the church and in the lives of the saints, two cases, David and Peter. Now, these are our brothers. These are our real men. These are men we hope to see one day, men we trust are right now in heaven, enjoying the presence of the Lord Jesus and in glory, glorified souls without any taint of sin in their being. And yet it was not always so. As they walked upon the earth, they, like us, had a sin nature, set free from the dominion of sin, but sin remaining. And, as we're reminded tonight, that though God preserves all of us elect, not a single one will be lost, but all will be brought safely to heaven. God will preserve the faith of his people, yet... Even the believer can fall into sin, even into what the canons call outrageous sins or monstrous sins, deep sins. The case of David is very familiar to us, of course, that, that surprising chapter of 2 Samuel 11, that the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, the one who had fought battles against enemies of the Lord and won them, who had, who had challenged Goliath and, and won the victory. David, who stood strong, who loved God's law, yet one evening looks out and fails to keep watch. And he watches in a wrong way, watches another woman, and he gives in to his lust. And pretty soon, to cover his tracks, he even kills the man. What kind of a king, while his soldiers are off at battle? would take one of their wives to himself and then kill that soldier to cover his own shame. Shepherd of Israel, the anointed of the Lord. And then there's the failure of Peter. Peter, who had been trained by the Lord for a few years, who had witnessed great miracles, who had been taught by the Savior. Peter, who had heard Jesus warn the disciples that on this night you're going to be made to stumble. Peter, with the audacious boldness, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then, denying Jesus once, and then twice, and then three times, with cursing and with oaths, swearing, I do not know Jesus. Last time we... So on the canon, it's the wonderful truth that God preserves our souls. He keeps us in the faith. 
But in the stories of David and Peter and in numerous other places in the Bible, we're reminded of another truth that although we're being kept all the way to heaven, it doesn't mean that we can't fall into sin. God will keep us to the end. And yet we can never take sin lightly. We are liable to great dangers, to great temptations, to, to great enemies. And all of that should not remove tonight our comfort of the reality that our God is keeping us and we will arrive in glory, that God is faithful and he will preserve us. But it should promote in us a proper fear of our enemies, a proper kind of trembling at the power of sin and Satan, and it should promote in us a, an urgent desire to stay awake and to be watchful and prayerful and to use all the means the Lord has supplied for us. So tonight we see that the Lord preserves us by lovingly warning us about carelessness in the Christian life and the consequences that follow. And we'd like to consider three points tonight. First of all, the possibility of stumbling. And secondly, the pain of sin. And thirdly, the promise of God. Those, as you find them in your bolt in there, the possibility of stumbling, the pain of sin, and the promise of God. Now, Peter gives some warnings in his letter, but the letter of 1 Peter opens with the strongest of assurances, doesn't it? Because Peter says, you've been begotten to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You who are dead have been made alive in Christ and being raised from the spiritual death, the spiritual life in Christ, you have two glorious assurances. Number one, that there's an inheritance in heaven for you and it cannot be removed. It's not going to perish, spoil, or fade away. It, it's secure in heaven. It won't rust or be stolen. It is the inheritance of living with God eternally. And then you upon earth, you are being, he says, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So your inheritance is absolutely secure and you are being preserved by God's sovereign power upon the earth. Those two great comforts. But does that mean that nothing can go wrong and we can just put it on cruise control? Can we become proud and careless in our journey? And they think nothing will happen. Does it mean that we're immune to temptation? Does it mean that we kind of wear a, a big bubble suit and, and everything just bounces off of us? Or that we have a bulletproof vest and we can run through enemy fire without, without being scathed? Sometimes we sort of feel that way, don't we? Things are going well. Haven't had any big disasters lately. We feel like, you know, I've, I've got this. I'm pretty strong. I'm not, I'm not afraid of temptation. I don't. I haven't even really prayed for the Lord to watch over me lately. Or maybe we even, in pride, we shake our heads at somebody who has fallen, and we think, how could they do that? How could they do that? It's so preposterous. But in this same letter where Peter begins with these glorious assertions of comfort and security, Peter says in what we read, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober. Be self-controlled. Be not sleepy, but wide awake. Be vigilant, that is, be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, rock, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's interesting isn't it, to think about the author of this letter. I mean, the author, of course, is God the Holy Spirit. But the, the human instrument is Peter, who's writing about something he knows by experience. He, on the night of Christ's arrest, overestimated his own strength and he underestimated the enemy. 
And therefore, he went into the courtyard of Caiaphas, and he thought, I can do this. Despite the warnings Jesus had just given him. And Peter fell. Peter fell horribly. Peter denied his Lord publicly three times with an oath. It wasn't Christ's fault. It wasn't that God didn't have enough power to sustain Peter. But as we confess in Article 4 of the Canons, although that power of God strengthening and preserving true believers is more than a match for the flesh, Yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions, they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. Beware. Now, we can never blame God. We try to do that sometimes when we stumble, right? We think, well, Lord, you, you put me in this circumstance. You could have stopped this. You could have had somebody intervene. You knew I was already under so much pressure. I burst out with angry wrath, but, but Lord, you, you added more. You knew I was already going through so much. Or, or we point the finger at other people. Look what you made me do. Maybe we husbands try to say it to our wives. Look what you made me do. Our children or their parents. Look what you made me do. Fault lies with ourselves, the Bible says. Because as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is always faithful. God never presses you beyond the capacity he gives to you. God always provides a way out without sinning. You don't ever have to say, the only way out of this is through sinning. I might as well sin. Satan always says that to you, right? You're not getting out of this one. You know you're going to sin. Just give in and get it over with. No, says the Bible. God provides a way of escape. Jesus provided his disciples a way of escape. The very night he was arrested, he told them to watch and pray. Watch and pray. And they instead fell asleep. Peter didn't take the warning seriously. Our Lord has provided us with means to stand. Be sober. Be watchful. Be watchful is to is to be alert to the devil's schemes. It's to be ready to examine self and say, where, where am I giving in? Where is my vulnerability? It, it means learning to discern and to test the spirits. Ephesians 6, you remember, it says to put on the whole armor of God. I've got a whole suit of armor to put on. So you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. And that section, Ephesians 6, comes to a close at verse 18 by saying, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. When you read that word, you realize then that the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints that we're talking about here is not some kind of mechanical or automatic thing. You just get locked in with Jesus and now it's on cruise control and you don't have to worry about any enemies no, there's this, there's this great struggle. Pray, supplicate, call upon the Lord for yourself and for your brothers and sisters. As one writer puts it, the Christian life is always personal. We have personal responsibility to resist sin and seek God through the means he has appointed. God remains always personal in his provisions and help to us. So it's not just that 
the church is a giant ship and God's going to steer the ship and keep it through the storms and bring it to shore. And if I'm on the ship and that's good to go, I can, I can sit back in the recliner chair at the pool now and I'll get there safely. I mean, God is protecting his church also as a whole, right? But he's also doing it with his individuals. And we have individual responsibility, each one of us, in the particular temptations that come to us to fight against sin. And in the temptations that come to all of us, yet each of us must personally guard our thoughts and labor to think the right thoughts and call upon the Lord from our own hearts. For each of us, there's a race to be run. For each of us, there's a fight to be fought. And for each of us, Christ Jesus is also the personal Savior there to give grace and strength and mercy. But sometimes in the Christian life, we may become careless. We may give way to our continuing weakness of sin in our hearts. We may, instead of pressing forward, we may retreat. Instead of standing strong, we may, we may lay down and, and give in. It doesn't have to be that way because we're not obligated to sin. We're not, we're not under the dominion of sin anymore. We're not owned by sin. So we can always say no to it by God's grace. But when we don't watch and pray, the canons remind us that we may be carried away by the flesh, the world and Satan, into sin and even into serious and outrageous sins. Not carried away to death. No, the elect of God are never carried away to hell, but even into grave sins. So God in his word has given us a mirror. We look into it and we, we, look at, we look at David and we look at Peter and we say, yes, I'm capable of that, but for the grace of God. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But then God's word, it goes even further. It shows us not just that we can fall into sin, but that the falling into sin can be a, a very horrible and painful thing. And that's the second thing we consider tonight, the pain of sin, the pain of sin's consequences. It won't do to just yawn at the warnings of the Bible, say, yeah, I might fall into sin. People fall into sin. Lots of Christians fall into sin. It's not, it's not such a big deal. Now, God paints for us in his word the sorrows and the consequences of sin. Man in Proverbs who wouldn't listen to the word, and now he's, he's grieving and saying, why wouldn't I listen? Why wouldn't I learn? Consequences of sin are, are painted here in, in the canons of Dort. Three things with respect to God and three things with respect to our own soul. In Article 5, by such monstrous sins, however, they, number one, greatly offend God. Greatly offend God. We, we focus pretty readily on what sin does to us. Sin brings me shame. It humiliates me or hurts someone else. And yet, the, the first thing sin always does is it offends God. And in a culture that's consumed with learning to forgive itself, forget that sin is, is always defined in terms of relationship to God. We have violated God's law. We have dishonored God. And that should actually horrify our hearts, right? And it happens, you know, in human terms that once in a while we sin against someone and we think afterwards, why was I so rude? Why was I so mean to the person I love the most? But it should 
grieve our hearts that we've sinned against the God who so loved us. He gave his beloved son, who's born with us, who's watched over us, who created us. should sadden us to think of offending God. And then the, the Article 5 says of the consequence, not just that we offend God, but that we deserve then the sentence of death. It's an interesting statement in our confession, isn't it? We deserve the sentence of death. But you see, being a Christian does not make our sins smell like a, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean now that, that, that your sin's not so bad. We might think that sometimes. Now I'm a Christian, so my sin's not, my sin's not like their sin. No, actually it is. It actually is. In Jesus Christ, it's forgiven, but that means it needs to be forgiven. It deserves the wrath of God. Being a Christian doesn't mean that sin is now permissible for me. Even the sins of the believer, after becoming a believer, must be covered by the blood of Jesus. We must pray, forgive us our debts daily. And then the canons say that we are thirdly, we grieve the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, remember the apostle says, don't grieve the Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We, sometimes in our sin, we say, hey, it's nothing personal. You know, people sin, I sin, I kind of like sin, but don't, you know, God, don't take it personally. And the Bible says, well, actually, he does. He takes it very personally. Don't sadden the Spirit who, who dwells in you, who loves you, who's laboring for you jealously. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that, that you're a holy people. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a holy people. God the Holy Spirit lives in you. And because of that, then Peter says in 1 Peter 2 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Don't grieve the Spirit who's made you a holy priesthood. But then the canons remind us that our sin affects not just God in the sense of offending Him and grieving Him, but it speaks of three things with respect to our own experience of God. It says, number one, that, that we through these sins then may suspend the exercise of faith. Again, an interesting statement. To suspend the exercise of faith doesn't mean that we lose the reality of faith, but that the faith given by the Spirit, which is never rescinded and always preserved, yet the, the blessings and benefits of that faith may not appear in full force. We might lose the comfort of faith. We might find ourselves feeling like we can't pray. Is that the case sometimes? I can't pray. Or... I just can't listen to the word. I open the Bible and I can't read it. Or, or suddenly now worship services become kind of a nuisance. A nuisance and an irritant. Peter talks about a suspension in 1 Peter 3.17 when he, uh, I think it's 3.7, when he calls husbands to love their wives. 1 Peter 3 verse 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them, your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a suspension of the exercise of faith. That if you don't treat your wife as a, a precious daughter of God, giving her honor, 
then your prayers will be blocked. Maybe you won't be able to pray. Maybe you won't be able to pray with your wife. Maybe God won't listen to your prayers. The psalmist says, if I had regarded iniquity in my heart, you would not have heard me. And then a second consequence for us is that we severely wound the conscience. Severely wound the conscience. Our conscience has become dull to the ugliness of sin. When you look at King David after his adultery and murder, and you wonder, how did he continue to function as king? And when, when Nathan the prophet came to him, you know, and, and told him the story, the parable, the man who, uh, well, he didn't know it was a parable at the time. David thought it was a true story that a man had taken, a rich man who had lots of sheep, took the one little lamb of the poor man for supper. And David reacts with such anger, such anger. He deserves to die. And you think, how did, how did David dare to be so bold in that proclamation? How, how does David even consider himself now and function as a king? And yet, we don't see clearly in the midst of sin. But the wounded conscience can also be the slowness to call upon God for fear that he won't receive us. Like a child who's done wrong, he doesn't want to come now near to his father. Unconfessed sin can do much damage to our spiritual, and even to our physical well-being, right? Unconfessed sin may have lots of effects upon us mentally, physically. And then thirdly, the canons say we might lose the awareness of grace for a time. Not that we'll lose the grace, but the awareness or the sense of grace. Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly after his denial, right? Probably had doubts about where he stood with the Lord. David prayed in Psalm 51, his psalm connected to the Bathsheba incident, Uriah incident. He prayed, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. All of this is, uh, what's to make us say, I don't want to be in that spot. I I don't want to take sin light. I don't want to be in that position of, of bearing these consequences and knowing this pain. Oh, Lord, help me to stand. But it should also help us in thinking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, when we see somebody who's willingly living in sin, and they complain to us, you know, I can't pray. I just can't read my Bible. I can't listen to it. I don't feel like God loves me. What do you say? If someone is living in open hostility to their brother or sister, or someone's refusing to attend to worship services, or someone is living with their girlfriend, what do you say? Sometimes we're too quick to give a blanket assurance. Maybe as parents or grandparents, we're we're moved in that way because we love and we want to assure. But we have to be careful here because a person who's stubbornly living in rebellion has no right to the assurance of salvation. As long as they willfully live in sin, they haven't a right 
to the assurance of salvation. Living in open rebellion is going to war against Christ the true king, and his wrath is real. And we should not soothe rebellious souls to sleep, but we should point out to them that the uneasiness they're experiencing is the consequence of sin, and what's needed is repentance. Repentance is the path to assurance. Returning to the mercies of the Lord. Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the sad condition, the sad consequences need not last forever. But the canons are clear at the end of Article 5, aren't they? All these sad consequences until, after they have returned to the way of genuine repentance, God's fatherly face shines again upon them. So let's consider that last point, the promise of God. The promise of God is that he'll keep us and restore us. The first part of that glorious promise is is the prodigal son parable, right? It's that there's a father with open arms and everyone who returns will find in him a father who's willing to forgive. But the other part of this is that God's safekeeping guarantees our return. He's not just a father who waits for a son who went off to the far land, but he's the father who pursues the son. He's the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. He's the spirit who will not leave us alone, but works repentance in our hearts. Witness God's ways with with David and with Peter. These brothers fell deeply, and their sins are recorded in the word of God, and they're used for the church throughout the ages to be made to tremble at falling. But, But there's also the story of wondrous grace in their lives. God sent David a prophet And God gave such wisdom to Nathan the prophet that Nathan the prophet snuck in the back door. He knew that David had the front door boarded up with shields and all that. And he knew the approach David had on would would probably not do it. So so Nathan snuck around the back with a parable, with a a story about a man who took a a man's one little lamb. and, And David laid down his shields at that point. He thought it was about somebody else. And And he pronounced a judgment, and then Nathan said, no, you're the man. Judgment is on you. And God broke David's heart, didn't he? God broke. It wasn't just Nathan the prophet, it was the Spirit of God broke David's heart. What glorious psalms we have. We sing Psalm 51, and probably Psalm 32 also coming from that situation. Or think of Peter, how marvelous it was that that in that courtyard, as he denied Jesus three times, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. That's probably how Peter felt. Jesus, a trial, looks across at Peter, and he breaks his heart. Peter goes out and weeps. And then on resurrection morning, Jesus to the women it says, go tell my disciples, and Peter too. A special word for Peter. Give him encouragement. And then, a third time, at the breakfast at the lake. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? How far Christ goes to 
bring Peter to repentance, to assurance, to restoration to office. What a gracious God we have. David could sing in Psalm 32, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my heart. That's the wonder of our glorious God. Next time we read in Article 6 of the Canons, For God, who is rich in mercy according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. David prays in Psalm 51, Take not your spirit from me. And God says, No, I never do. I might take from you the sense of my spirit. You may not feel the assurance of the Spirit, but I never take my Spirit from those I give it to. So God works genuine repentance and elect. That Spirit within them leads them back to God in sorrow for their sin. And then they experience God's face to shine upon them again. That God loves them with His radiant fellowship. That He sends them His blessing and His mercies. And why doesn't God cast us off when we do these things to Him? When we offend Him and dishonor His name? And it's because he's the God of salvation and the God of mercies who loved us in Christ before the creation of the world, who sent his beloved to die for us. And he loves us to the end. And the Christ he gave us died to pardon not just first-time sins. All the sins before you became a Christian died for those. But if you sin after being a Christian, you're on your own. No died for the sins after you become a Christian. And he died not just for smaller sins, but if you commit a monstrous sin, sorry, no. He died for monstrous sins. And he died not just for some sins, but for all our sins. He died for every sin David committed, including adultery and murder, He died for every sin Peter committed, including denying his Lord. And so great is his grace that he actually tells us in his word that he works all things together for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. Sin is horrible. But even our sin in the hands of the omnipotent God is worked in such a way to bring about the greatest good. The worst things, things we're guilty of, are overruled by God for our good. And we begin to see, don't we, brothers and sisters? We begin to see that even our past failures are now in the hands of God, tending towards our future glory. They become helps to us and helps to others. Let me mention four things. Number one, we learn through our failings that we are so much weaker than we thought we were. And so we learn not to play with sin, not to play with temptation. First time we got burned as a child by a hot stove or by a fire, we learned, I don't want to fall into a a campfire or something. That is very hot. That hurts. And so God uses our failings and our, our sorrows and the pain and the embarrassment we go through. And the grief that I offended God to make us want to never do it again. And so God uses even our stumblings to keep us 
from eternally stumbling from him. Number two, we learn to be more thankful for grace than we ever were before. Before we thought, well, grace is nice. I'm not sure I really need it. After you fall, you say, boy, I desperately need it. Maybe you had an experience that didn't shake you too much at the time, but looking back, you think, boy, when I was young, we were so foolish, we could have got killed. Maybe you remember falling asleep when you were driving. I thought, man, that, that literally could have been the end of me, but the Lord preserved me physically. But you see, we have those experiences spiritually too. We say, wow, I, if the Lord hadn't taken that person out of my life, if the Lord hadn't plucked me out of that place, who knows what I would have done. We've learned to be more thankful to our guardian and our keeper and to the wonder of God's grace that he didn't give up on us, but he sought us, he who bought us, and we're thankful in all the ways God's preserved us. Number three, we, we learn to be more sympathetic and humble towards others because we know now how easy it is to fall. We've seen our own hearts be led astray. We know that every single one of us is prone to wander. We're not immune to the seductions of the world in our flesh. And so we, we look at each other different in the church. One commentator on the canons writes, we should not be shocked by the fact that people of the Lord can fall very deeply. Rather than holding it against a person for the rest of his or her life, we are to follow the prescription of the Apostle Paul who reminds us, Brethren, if a man is overtaken by trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Reckoning with our own sins and observing the mercy of God towards us makes us gracious to others. Number four, this benefit, God working all things together for good, we can hold out hope to those who've fallen. We learn to do that. We can say, look what the Lord has done for me. Look at how gracious he's been to me. The Lord can set you free. The Lord will forgive you. Didn't God do all of these four things and more in the lives of David and Peter? I mean, if you ask David, would you, would you do it all over again? Of course not. If you ask Peter, you know, would you do it all over? Of course not. But if you ask him, was there benefit? Did God work out benefit? Well, actually, David couldn't even tell you. Because we live thousands of years later, and we know the benefit. We know the benefit of the story of David. We know the benefit of Psalm 32. We, we know the benefit of Psalm 51. These are the lifeblood of the church of Jesus Christ. How many wayward, wayward souls haven't found their way back to the Lord through those psalms? God worked tremendous good in spite of the horribleness of sin. And the same for Peter. I mean, here he is now, an apostle, and writing to the saints and saying, watch out for the devil. He's become a true shepherd of souls, warning the flock, sounding the old heart. 
saying to the young adults, don't think you're so strong. I thought I was pretty strong. Be sober, be vigilant. But all of this is by God's grace, not by David's strength, not by Peter's strength. All this is by God's grace and not by David's merit or Peter's merit. All of this is by grace. Grace, only grace, can turn our worst failures into stepping stones to heaven. Only grace. And so all of our sins are reminding us day after day that it's not us but him. He is the Lord of salvation. Glory be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled before you. And we need to be more humbled. Father, there's too much carelessness and pride within us still. And yet we're grateful that you bear with us. And ever faithfully and gently you are showing us how weak we are, how kind you are. Pray, Lord, that you would make us alert to the devil, that you would help us to be sober and to be vigilant, to believe that Satan is a more ferocious and evil and powerful enemy than we often think. Lord, we pray that as you show us our enemies and our own weakness, that you will give us comfort in the power of our Lord Jesus we will appeal in his name to you to protect us, that we'll live in his strength, that we'll put on his armor, that we may stand. We pray, Lord, for those who feel ashamed of their sin, who've been bowed down by waywardness, who may feel they've committed a great or grievous sin. We pray, Lord, that you would restore them to yourself and to the congregation. And that you would make of us a gracious and forgiving people who are quick to encourage, to forgive, to give a bright face, a reflection of the bright, shining face of our God. We thank you, O Lord, for the community of the saints. Thank you that here we learn to stand together. Make us diligent in praying for each other. Help us, Lord, to seek out those who have been absent from our worship. Help us to care and to fear that someone may be wandering from the way. Help us to draw others back. Make us receptive to our shepherd's care and our under-shepherds, the elders whom you've appointed. Help us to humble our hearts under their care and make them effective, Lord, in their ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.